welcome back to the third episode of the Second Renaissance, where I have the opportunity to sit down with good friend and fellow entrepreneur Christian Westerland Wigstrom, the CEO of Maneuver, which is, of course, part of the important digital plumbing that provides automated payments around the world. And don't we all want that in an age of disruption like the present one? We go down a trip in memory lane for Christian, uh, ending with the fact and the realization of us growing up incidentally on the same street in Stockholm, Sweden, about 35 years ago, before covering his time as a speechwriter for a lord in the United Kingdom his times in Vienna, Austria, advising a family office and their agribusiness ventures in Harare, Zimbabwe, where he found himself living for several years together with his wife, Angela, and how that led him to a journey around the world to eventually finding himself in the fintech space in Sydney, Australia, where his organization and brand keeps taking out nominations and awards in the fintech space. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Christian Westerlin Wickstrom. Christian, welcome to the uh, Second Renaissance podcast. Great to have you on the show today. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's great to be here. I think the title of the podcast already suggests it's going to be a great conversation. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and we've got a fantastic guest here today as well. We're, we're sitting in North Sydney yep. uh, in uh, Australia. Yeah. On the other side of the world to where we're actually from. We're both not <laughs> only from Sweden. Like the same street. <laughs> we actually found ourselves here on the other side of the world somehow magically. Yeah. Uh, despite growing up. Uh, in Stockholm, Sweden, uh, at Karlavägen and Engelbrechtsgatan in the middle of Stockholm, That's right. um, about 40 odd years and, ago. And the funny thing was that when we saw each other here, we, the first sentences we exchanged were still in English because I don't think either of us was entirely sure that the other one was who it might be. And then, I mean, we broke the ice pretty quickly, but it's like, wait a minute, did you go to that school? Yes. Oh, well, oh my God, it's you. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's, I mean, it's just funny. It just kind of shows you how, how you know, how globalized the world is exactly. and how, how our sort of, you know, life fates have yep. gone up tandem to a degree. And we're certainly today going to talk a little bit about your journey to Australia from the, mm. from the olden world of Stockholm, Sweden, where we did grow up, you know, just a kind of a stone's throw away from each other. But um. We find ourselves in the year 2020, so we fast forward from the you know very early 80s in Stockholm, Sweden, to to a year that feels a little bit eerie. It sort of feels mm. like the science fiction movie 28 Days Later, or maybe it's a zombie movie. Uh, we're here in North Sydney at the Maneuver head offices, and uh, when I look out, you know the, the the streets are still pretty quiet here during this pandemic year, although things True. are picking up. I mean, it certainly was even more quiet earlier. Um, and there were no boats on the water that you can maybe see, um, apart from one cruise ship after another that were all moored in the middle of the water for sort of contagion and quarantine reasons. So for a while, obviously, there were still cruise ships coming in. This is sort of March, April, because they had nowhere else to go. They were out there somewhere expecting to, to moor in, in Sydney, but they weren't actually allowed to be on the dock itself. So it looked, that looked a bit strange. In fact, it... it uh, made me think of, I guess, the very early days of Australia where you had the, the, the penal ships lying on the Thames uh, for a few months before they actually took off from the UK, or it wasn't actually UK at the point, but from Great Britain, uh, to come here. Um, and it sort of felt like the equivalent, but the other way around. Now, the ships were lying here instead, waiting to be sent off somewhere else. <laughs> but 
finally, uh, that's no longer happening. And uh, yeah, it's coming to life a little bit, which is a good thing. Yeah. Now you might, if you're a listener to the show or a viewer of the vodcast, you might just pick up that despite the fact that Christian and I are both Swedish, our accents when we speak and this wonderful language that is English or Australian uh, are slightly different. So um, I've spent, you know, the last 20 years on and off mm -hmm. in, in Australia. Uh, but your accent is uh, is one that all uh, over the place. Yeah, it's a bit all <laughs> over the place. There's a, there's a bit of Zimbabwean. There's a bit That's of right. Afrikaans. There's a little bit of Oxford English. Uh, you sound a little bit closer to the Thames, maybe than uh, than, than Sydney in some ways. And I, I, that would be a very astute observation. So, um, I haven't been here for twenty odd years. I've been here for four years, and uh, the trip here was, I guess. Again, drawing on a historical analogy, not entirely unlike the first fleet. <laughs> I did not stop by in Brazil, which the first fleet did do, but I did start off in the UK, uh, having left uh, Sweden at the age of 21 after my military service. Uh, started in the UK for many years, much longer than I probably had thought when I set out. Um, went from the UK via Zimbabwe. The first fleet stopped in Cape Town. I stopped slightly further north. Uh, and that's, I actually never thought of this, but quite like the analogy, um, and then came to Sydney in 2016. And uh, so it has been a, uh, an unusual path, I'd say, to being where we are now. And I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about Maneuver later, but uh, it is a payments business. And I had at no point before arriving here thought that I'd be working with payments. Um, when I was on the Thames, I was working in Parliament um, uh, in London for a while in the House of Lords. That was quite different from, from payments. Uh, in Zimbabwe, I was working with agriculture. Uh, bananas and avocados are also quite different from payments. Uh, and then I'm here. I mean, I think there are some commonalities that we can talk about, but uh, it's certainly been, I think, quite exciting to move from one thing to the next. And yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been said that um, one of the you know, riskiest endeavors that, that, a, that a human being can ever go on is to kind of you know, pick up and leave their roots behind whether it's in sweden or harare or as in your wife leaving australia to go to to england where you guys met at university um and that that is also the kind of hallmark and it's, i guess a leading indicator of of an entrepreneur so i'm i'm sitting here with christian westerlin wigstrom in sweden i would say christian westerlin wigstrom uh, and he is the ceo of maneuver which is of course a, a fintech and uh, you've also been uh, nominated or shortlisted as fintech leader of the year 2020 in this in this I was, pandemic i was very very proud of that yeah yeah is that like the golden globe or is it like that the Oscars of the fintech so I, industry. As someone who probably knows way too little about both the Oscars and the Golden Globe, I have been told that um, the Finnies are a bit like the Oscars. Uh, if you are uh, a fintech industry participant here in Australia, um, the fintech awards, which with absolutely no slight on them, I would say are probably just in terms of sort of market awareness, probably a bit more like the, the Golden Globe. Uh, so we were shortlisted for two, uh, cat in two categories for the Finneys uh, and are very proud to have been finalists. But then we won uh, at the Fintech Awards uh, just two weeks ago. Um, best Fintech Payments Provider of the Year. Fantastic. Yeah, very, that's very exciting, actually. Now, I mean, uh, as, as a futurist, I guess I get to be the, 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 the narrator or the science fiction storyteller. I mm. mean, we, we do work with, you know, 
lots of major banks around the world and I've sort of been warning them about the emergence of, of fintechs and, and the, you know, the decoupling of, of financial services from uh, traditional financial services players and, yep. and the sort of creative destruction <laughs> possible um, when fintechs see friction and, and, and market opportunities. Mm. Um, I guess over time, though, fintechs have not just been responsible for sort of, you know, creative destruction and, you know, tr the likes of TransferWise that you mm. partner with, taking market share from, from the major players. But increasingly, it looks like fintechs and banks, you know, non-banks and neobanks, yep. that everyone is actually kind of starting to, to collaborate. And, uh, and that is absolutely critical, I think, for the success of the whole ecosystem. And one might think, well, what does the matter? I mean, for most people who will be watching this at some point, uh, this all just seems like an industry-specific type of thing to worry about. But payments are something that we all encounter all the time, everywhere we go. In fact, probably between you leaving your bed this morning and coming here, you've probably transacted once or twice. Who knows? Maybe more times. Um, I'm definitely the same. I bought a coffee. I've been on public transport. Um, those are all transactions. Even very, very small efficiency, efficiency improvements in payments can have absolutely spectacular impact uh, on human society. Now, that might seem like a corny, very far-reaching type of thing to say and that someone in my industry would say um, to sort of warrant the attention. But um, it is not that hard for people who, like us, grew up in the 80s to remember things that were really quite different. Uh, now, in Australia, that would be uh, imagining a world without tap and go, for instance, uh, where cash was more generally what you used to pay things with. Um, and something like tap and go happens and it changes your everyday experience. It might not seem like a big change, but it is quite a big change in terms of your behavior, in terms of the things that you consider to be normal everyday occurrences and, and other things that you don't think are. So you save four seconds by tapping mm. and going, but there's bigger consequences than that. I well, imagine. that's right. Um, four seconds can aggregate pretty quickly. Uh, so an example I've used in the past, and I'm very happy to do it again, um, is uh, there was something like 2 billion cups of coffee being sold every day around the world. Now, let's assume that it takes 15 seconds to buy a cup of coffee. So that's 30 billion seconds per day. Uh, by happenstance, 30 million seconds in a year. So as an aggregate human experience, we're spending 1,000 years per day paying for coffees. Now, imagine what we could do as a humanity with our time if we want another thousand years back per day and that's coffees alone that's not talking about then the other groceries and everything else that you're doing just the, the the sheer impact over time not day one but over time of no longer having to say i'm so sorry i have to put you down i'm about to pay for something at the till i'll call you back the four seconds the five seconds the 15 seconds whatever it is that you interrupt a conversation that probably has more value to you to part with something you don't want to part with is overall, I think, going to bring about just a small improvement in almost everyone's lives. And maybe one common thread in some of the things I've been doing, even though they on the surface look very distinct and different, um, is that I think I've discovered, for myself at least, that almost everything you do is boring to most other people. Almost everything is something that you get very involved in yourself and others have their own things that they get involved with. But almost everything can get exciting if you connect what you're doing to other people's everyday experiences. And so when I was in Zimbabwe and I was you know, dealing with bananas and teas and stuff, what you come to understand is the effort and the sometimes very, very small improvements in efficiency or in 
productivity or other forms of innovation of moving something from being a tea bush to being a cup of tea. And it just a marginal improvement there across enormous volumes of produce has actually a very large impact for lots of people involved. Payments is a bit like that. It's a stuff, it's a thing that like lots of other stuff, we just expect it has to work. If it doesn't, we find out pretty quickly that we rely on it. But as long as it works, we, we sort of don't really pay much attention. It's another everyday thing where small improvements can have big impact. And, and it's not necessarily something people think about actively as, 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 a right. lay, as a lay person, right? But, you know, if you're, if, you're a, if you're a business or if you're an entrepreneur or mm. if you run, you know, an Airbnb business or, you know, if you're settling on a mortgage, mm. you know, that's time, right. time matters and, and certainly the clearance of money into your accounts in real time <laughs> uh, certainly matters. And, you know, even as an entrepreneur, you know, shortening your cash flow conversion cycle is, uh, is something that's critical. I mean, even, even Russell and Kogan from Kogan.com yeah. said recently that, you know, that, uh, you know, um, business growth or revenue is uh is vanity profit is sanity and cash flow is king so you you guys kind of <laughs> okay sounds good I yeah like that. and you enable that that cash that's to, right to and, and again there are some different levels at which it may have or would have an impact it is the just the everyday convenience for a single in individual there is the slightly larger in fact it could be quite a large impact let's say a larger utility provider um um, gas or electricity provider, if they have slightly faster um, receivables functions, so they get money faster from their customers, it means better treasury management, which could actually bring down costs or uh, at least reduce opportunity costs of funds just being in motion somewhere, um, which will have a direct aggregate impact on the economy as a whole. Now, a lot of these things, again, might seem like they're far-fetched, but if you just think about, we're talking about something here that every single person who watches this, who who doesn't watch this will have a personal experience of, you can start imagining the kind of sort of knock-on impact that, that this has on just life working. And what we find is that um, when, again, it doesn't work, everyone cares a lot. And when it does work, people just assume it's, you know, it's the way it's always been. Um, I think one interesting fact for me is that payments experiences is one of the very few things that we share with um, people in the stone age. There are not that many things that you can go up to a person from the stone age and say, hey, I have a story and you have a story. Let's talk. A few things, probably, you know, when you had your last meal and how was your last night's sleep, and, but not that many things. Your, your conversation is cut short pretty quickly, but you probably can say, oh, you know, I exchanged this for that. And they will have their, their story of uh, a bone for a rock or a rock for a stone or whatever it is, and we will have ours. Um, I think after 40,000 years, that's sort of the, the first evidence of a transaction is 40,000 years ago, we're coming to an end where very, very soon, and I think we're talking about 10, 15 years, that last link of sharing stories with Stone Age people about transactions is going to disappear. And I think that's disappearing because while we're all so future-oriented and smashed avocado eating and uh, feeling like we are in the, the best and most pioneering world, all of which is probably true. We are still, I think, in, um, in an interregnum when it comes to payments. Um, an analogy that I use often as well is that uh, between open fires and torches and, uh, and the like, but before electricity, there was kerosene. Kerosene was this amazing invention where 
everyone thought this is it like all of a sudden who's going to be using open fireplaces anymore here we can control the size of the flame very easily much easier to to transport kerosene than logs of wood and whatever it is but the day electricity showed up kerosene was as if it never happened but for a brief 25 or period uh 25 year period or something um it was the thing i think right now we are in the kerosene phase of payments so you know, first credit card or something that looks like a credit card was a diner's club in the 50s. Um, until then, it was always a physical um, token of value that was literally handed over. You parted with it. Um, and there was a, so there was a physical token of value that was handed over and a physical action in handing it over. With cards, all of a sudden, uh, there is a virtual token of value. You no longer leave the card you know, when you pay, you, you keep the card, but there's a mm -hmm. virtual transaction going on, but there's still a physical action, a mm -hmm. physical act of you hand something over. Still to this day, Samsung Pay, Google Pay, whatever it is, you still, there's a physical tapping. That's going to My, uh, my three-and-a-half-year-old, Lucian, has uh, mastered the act of tap and go. That's right. Yeah. But I think that in just a few years' time, Lucian is going to look back at 2020, uh, which, uh, you know, we'll have lots of very, very strange things about it. But one of them is going to be, I cannot believe you guys still had to like, do a thing. You still had to interrupt whatever you wanted to do um, to part with something you didn't want to part with. Um, I think paying as an activity, paying, is going to disappear into the, the shrouded mysteries of the past. And payment is going to be a status, not an activity. It will be paid, just like in an Uber. You will not be paying anymore. It will just happen. But it's, an, it's a non-event in many ways. And it is, yeah. It's a status. It's, something, it's a bit like... It's not too long ago that we were all connecting to the internet. You'd see spinny wheels and whatever you're connecting. No one is connecting anymore. Everyone's just connected. It happens in the background. It's so fast. It's such a, as you say, non-event. It's not an activity. It's a state. And it sometimes feels odd. Like the, the I mean, just the experiences, the everyday experience of say, you know, being in an Uber. Hmm. Like the, the act of just leaving that Uber yeah. without having to, do something physical, pull a card out, you know, out of your pocket mm. or your wallet or, you know, your man bag or your handbag and tap, you know, it, it's just disrupted that. And so the idea that payments can happen seamlessly yeah. as a non-event in the background is something we now kind of take for granted. So when you do yeah. step into a taxi now and you have yeah, to do the right. physical thing uh, with a card or with cash, not only is that, you know, card or cash a potential vector for the virus as you know yeah um but it feels somehow foreign or but it's also um the fact that we still call it an uber experience i mean it's a bit akin to going into a room with electrical light and say oh the edison experience you know at some point it will cease to be a thing you know it's not it's no longer the uber experience it's yeah. just an experience amongst a thousand in a day where it just happens in the background we when things become obvious they cease to have a label or the label itself becomes the activity like you know you don't have the google experience you google something whether or not you're actually on google is a different question um and so i mean for patent people and uh, branding people you know there are lots of battles to be won here but ultimately i think we'll drop the uber and we'll just say you know i had all these things happening today yeah i mean it's always been the case that you know today's luxury is is tomorrow's expectation mm. and so you know, the, these customer expectations, be it B2B or B2C, you know, keep, keeps rising with, with new technologies. Yes. And I think in many ways they become more 
more human centric yes. courtesy of the new technology so i just want to i just want to kind of concretize and i'm going to go into your backstory in just a moment as well of of how you ended up here at, at maneuver um but just to concretize the importance of of payments and digital payments automated and real-time payments there's a there's a story of uh and you know this from an african context of course of Mpesa, which was yep. you know a mobile payment provider and one of the you know the the, the early innovators in that space but also Mpesa, which is the afghan version i did um, not know about Mpesa. Okay. so you know similar model now yep. what what happened in afghanistan um uh, when payments were flowing uh, initially via, via cash mm. in the Afghan police force used to get paid mm. um, in cash. Then they switched over the payment model to digital payments mm -hmm. via a similar system to M-Pesa, but yeah. via M-Pesa. Mm. Now, the Afghan police force thought they had been given a 30% pay increase when they saw their statement balances on their... Okay phones now the reason they thought they got a 30 percent increase yes. in their wages was that there was no middleman no superior in the police force skimping wow. every time the cash got handed yeah. out from their envelopes yeah so i think this sort of concretizes you know the experience Absolutely. of of being paid not just on time but also that there's no middlemen and women. Absolutely. And it's very easy to get lost in some kind of uh, Western bubble and thinking this stuff only happens here. In fact, Impesa, as you bring out in East Africa, was a very, very early mover. And in Zimbabwe, there was EcoCash and a few other ones um, that are really, really advanced. Now, we might think of it as a strange sort of anomaly that how can something that is uh, an environment that on the surface looks like it maybe has a bit to go before it gets to look a bit like this. Um, as 90s as these chairs look, I was told. Uh, <laughs> but, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be no, judging. I, I accept that. Uh, I hadn't thought of it, but it's probably right. Um, the fact is that uh, harsh conditions sometimes breed the best innovation. Uh, Impesa, I, I don't know the backstory to Impesa, but I, what you say rings, uh, rings very true. Impesa was one of several reason it was one of the several reasons for Mpesa being created was the fact that a lot of people working uh, in the cities particularly on the coast so Mombasa or Nairobi's not on the coast but um, uh, cities that were not immediately uh, around people were maybe necessarily from and then they'd, they'd go home uh, over holidays or um, depending on the agricultural calendar you know, harvesting seasons and so on and they would travel with cash now, that was very dangerous because a bit like highwaymen in, in the day, whether it was here or in, or in Europe, um, it was not uncommon that you lost a fair bit, maybe 30%. Uh, in that case, it was sort of outright robbery as opposed to outright corruption. Um, but it was a way of skipping that whole step. And what this brings out, other than thinking that, you know, we're not alone um, sitting in Europe, America or Australia, um, is also that financial technology is, of course, not a new thing. We, I think we're all quite self-conscious fintechers and we think everyone has to be more or less hipster and you know, pet camels and whatever else uh, goes with the profession. But connecting finance with technology is, of course, not new. Um, I mean, you can go really far back and financing technology are, in fact, inseparable. Uh, in fact, you could probably go back those 40,000 years, but even if we don't strike quite as far back, um, I mean, Knights Templar, first banking system. 
In fact, they were solving exactly the same problem as M-Pesa, which was it was very dangerous to carry gold bullion from, say, I don't know, Paris, where you started off as a crusader, and to the Holy Land. And so wouldn't it be much better if you could carry some token that I was owed that money and then you know, cash it out when you arrived in Jerusalem? And so that was the first international banking system with fractionalized banking. Um, that was really cutting edge. Uh, and to this day, we're using the same type of principles. Uh, both being Swedes, we, we know that in the Western world, uh, when you stopped using the actual value of something to be exchanged with a note of value, uh, having the first Western um, note, you know, uh, money note, um, that is a 16th century innovation. Uh, the Swedish Central Bank brought it out under the reign of Charles XI. Um, and, and so these are all steps in a very, very long chain of financial technology. It just so happens that in the last 10, 15 years or something, we decided we're cool people. This is new. What we do is new, but the fact that we're doing it is certainly not new. And the technology was paper-based or sure. some kind but of... Th that's you know. true. I, absolutely. But I, is, it's easy to look at it with myopic present-day eyes and mm -hmm. think that the marginal increases are... Um, the marginal benefits are bigger now than then. If we think about telecommunications, it used to take some point, I mean, um, about two months to get a message across the Atlantic. You know, early 1500s. At some point, you speed that up and it ends up being one month, two weeks or something. It was sort of pretty speedy sailboats uh, and ships in early 1800s. Some point, not too much later, you find you have a cable under the Atlantic. All of a sudden, I mean, the, 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 the relative change of going from two weeks or one week to a matter of minutes is maybe even bigger than shading that minute down to a millisecond. Arguably, once we start talking about a human impact, a lot of, I mean, we're standing on a lot of shoulders with a lot of giants here. Um, but yeah, of course, the tools are different. The objective is sort of the same. So the, the, the savings of the four seconds now with tap and go versus mm. having to pull out your... We're, we're, in, we're in a luxury time of optimization. Mm. Um, and we're going to continue that. And I still think that a thousand days, a thousand years a day is a pretty big saving for us as, a, as humankind. Um, most things that happen now are very big because also the very large number of participants. And we're 7 billion people that somehow buy these 2 billion cups of coffee every day. Um, that's more people than have ever been alive in the you know, combined history of, of humankind are alive right now. So changes now have very big impact. So the idea that there's all this human potential and, and latent potential in terms of time savings, and I mean, it's often said that, you know, the most precious resource we have mm. is time and yeah, you're a real agreed. enabler and of saving of time. So. It's going to be interesting to see where we can yeah. apply all of this latent human potentiality uh, and towards creativity so instead. Disappointing if we spent those thousand years per day just reading another story uh, on uh, a cute kitten somewhere. I, yeah. just, I just hope we do something good with it. Yeah, <laughs> fantastic. So I'm I'm curious to to go a step or a few steps backwards because your 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 backstory, you know, before you ended up at uh, Maneuver is is quite fascinating and. Um, my wife loves loves this accent or, or, of yours as well. And incidentally, we we also, given that we grew up in the same street as each other, both 
ended up with women who grew up yeah. in Australia, which Sydney, is also very strange. Uh, from the same suburb and who, who went to. I wonder to, if there's a third schools. couple like that somewhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, maybe if they listen to the exactly. podcast, we'll, we'll, we'll find an, uh, find another um, couple that has gone down a sort of a parallel path. But um, so you you did your military service in in Sweden, and then yep. you found yourself in in Britain. Um, where and of course listening to you as well it's always you know fascinating it's always like a history lesson um but you did your masters in economics at That's oxford right. university yep. and then you also did a phd in international relations right. at yep. uh at um found all of this on linkedin you know you so did very well. um <laughs> um but then from there um, yes. you, there were some interesting twists and turns that I mean, so, uh, yeah i mean I, I think what happened was i always thought um being sort of continental european Doing a three-year degree didn't really seem serious. Um, so in the UK, a bit like in a lot of the Anglo-Saxon world, the bachelor is three years, and a lot of people end there, or at least used to end there. Um, I always thought that summer masters would always be part of the of the deal um, when I got to the UK. Um, so I ended up doing a two-year master, so it ended up being five years, um, and thought that is probably it. Um, but just at the very, very end, in the last shivering month of my master's degree, I um, met this incredible man. Uh, he is uh, an economist and a member of the House of Lords, a uh, prolific author and uh, the probably best known biographer of John Maynard Keynes, Robert Skidelsky, or Lord Skidelsky. And he needed someone to help him write a book about global governance. He sort of thought, and I don't think he'll mind me saying this, uh, he thought that he was probably coming towards the end of a very prolific writing career and he'd write this one last sort of elder statesman type book. This is how we govern the world. Um, this was all happening. I, we, we spoke in May 2008. I was going to Mozambique um, for two months to teach panel data econometrics at the University of Maputo, which was cool. Um, and at the end of that, I was meant to come back to the UK and uh, meant to help him with this book. Of course, um, September 08 happened, Lehman Brothers collapsed, and this idea that you would finish uh, your extremely active writing life as a biographer, John Maynard Keynes, at the time when Keynesianism was all of a sudden no longer something for the museum shelves, but you know, pretty damn in the middle of things, uh, meant that this global governance book was in the end never written. Um, but I was, I had, uh, I guess, two options. I could either go into what I thought would probably be economics consulting or something in London that time, uh, or I could try to see, was there a way of creating a, a serious, credible background um, where I wouldn't be just lying on a couch in between um, to working with Robert Skidelsky at the House of Lords. And doing the PhD was something that I hadn't really thought of, but I realized this could be a great opportunity. Um, I loved Oxford. Uh, it was an amazing place. I made some very, very good friends there. met my wife. Um, and, um, and I thought, well, it will help me do two things. First of all, I had sort of started getting into the research bit of it. Uh, I can work part-time for Lord Skidelsky. And I was sort of trying a few startup things, all of which failed, all of which were great experiences. But... And really miserable failures. Uh, but so I'm telling you the story because it was then ultimately through Robert Skidelsky, whom I worked for, you know, probably in the end of five years, uh, on and off, very good friend, um, came to Zimbabwe to visit us, uh, etc. Um, at the end of my time with a PhD and working with him, I had also done a lot of work for a think tank in New York. And uh, in that sort of context, met a person who said, Christian, looks like you're getting to the end of the PhD. Um, let me know if you what your plans are forever. And I, had, I didn't really know. Um, but I knew I wanted three things. I wanted to work with entrepreneurs. It's really exciting to live 
and work close to decision makers. Um, I wanted to have a two-world life, if possible. Um, I had spent a lot of time in Africa previously. Uh, my research was very Africa-focused as well. Um, but I thought it doesn't have to be Africa, it could be something else. But I don't want to, sort of too early in life, end up in front of a screen in one place and the world sort of shrinks a bit geographically. It might expand in lots of other ways, family, whatever, but uh, I wasn't ready for that. Um, and ideally, I want to work for a family office. Uh, family offices or family-owned business, at least, tend to have long investment horizons. They literally think in generational terms because they think, well, you know, young... Anna, one day she's going to be taking over the business and uh, one day young Tim is going to take it over after her and whatever it is, they, they really do think in very long horizons, the sort of quarter-based capitalism is not sort of their thing. Um, so anyway, I told this man, uh, also a good friend, um, entrepreneurs, two-world life, family-owned business. And he said, I mean, which is just remarkable luck, actually. I know this person you should talk to. <laughs> and I met this person. He turned out to be uh, an extraordinary other story. Uh, which in have Vienna or in England? So he's Austrian, but he was in London that very night. Uh, and we could only see each other at 11 p.m. after he was at a, what must have been an exceptionally fun dinner. Uh, and we met in our apartment we literally just moved into in, in Notting Hill. Uh, I was coming down from Oxford where there was a, um, this was... Uh, What's it called when you have haggis? It's called Burns Night, uh, Scottish tradition. Anyway, uh, so I was coming down to our still unfurnished flat in London. He happened to be at dinner just three days, three doors down the road. Uh, and we spoke for 20 minutes. He is an entrepreneur through and through. And he and another family, a Norwegian family, had built this big uh, agricultural startup in Africa. And uh, he said, after 20 minutes, well, I think you should come down. So I think you have to tell me in two weeks, is it a no or not no? If it's a no, well, no, great to meet you. If it's a not no, you don't have to say yes yet then uh, you'll come down, you'll have a look around in Zimbabwe, you see what you think. If you have a partner, let him or her come down too. Uh, and that's what happened. So my now wife, Angela, and I flew down uh, about a month later or so. Uh, loved Zimbabwe. I very strategically proposed to her in Zimbabwe to make it a bit like our place, not mm -hmm. just my. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that was incredibly gracious. Uh, I won't tell Angela. Uh, of course. <laughs> uh, Angela was also finishing a PhD. It wasn't obvious to her that she would be a you know, housewife in Harare. Um, she ended up being very far away from a housewife, even though she, she did move down with me, which is obviously amazing. Uh, she ended up writing a book and working for Investec and all those things. But that's how we ended up there. Uh, spent three years there, some of the best years of my life. Uh, met amazing people, etc. And at some point we discovered, well, we sort of either stay here for another three years or so. You sort of commit to the place a bit longer, maybe have family there. Or it's probably the time to move away now. Uh, I think if you're not committing to a place, spending more than three odd years, people outside are going to think, like, why were you there for so long if you weren't going to stay? Three years, I think, is sort of what you have. Um, Angela is from here. And we decided uh, now is a good moment to move here. We're, we're expecting our first child already. Well, we're about to expect our first child. Came here and I landed in Sydney uh, late September 16 um, and uh, had a bag full of ideas, prejudice, probably against sort of what I would expect in Sydney. I'd been here quite a few times as a staunch European. I thought this might not necessarily be exactly what I'm looking for, but I you know, knew some lovely people here and I had come to like the place quite a bit. Was actually blown away, blown away by the openness of people. I had 30 odd coffees um, in the first two months. No one in Australia said no to a 30 minute coffee. I am eternally grateful for that. Really understood how amazing a place Sydney is. And one of the many copies I had uh, was with a man who founded MoneyTech, which is the 
the parent company of, of Maneuver, which I've built over the last four years. So that's how this happened. And we're sitting in the headquarters of that's right. both MoneyTech and, and that's right. Maneuver here. Fantastic. That's a very long story, but um, it's, it's been fun. And it's all right. People have written, you know, long stories about uh, the first fleet and you drew on that sort of analogy. I am, earlier, I'm very, so. very proud of that one. I had right. never thought of it. I'm definitely going to use that more often. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so speaking in, 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 in metaphor or in tongues, as some people might say, yes. you know, I'm, I'm just curious where Maneuver sort of sit. I know, you know, one of my favorite payment providers um, for international exchanges is, is, is transfer wise. But in layman's terms, can you, mm. can you explain, or with a metaphor, can you explain yeah. in, a, you know, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way we all understand, what, is, what does Maneuver essentially do? So Maneuver automates uh, how businesses receive, manage, and pay funds. That's not a metaphor yet. I'm getting there. Um, but it's important to know that we are not replacing banks. We're not, um, it's, it's a hobby, hobby in the fintech world to be bank bashing. Yeah? Everything bad in the world has come from a bank. Some of which is true, some of which probably really isn't. Uh, we work very closely with banks because banks are very, very good at building infrastructure and maintaining systems between one bank and another bank. Um, the way that we look at it is that uh, that's sort of their world. But most businesses require some sort of interface between a bank and themselves because where information really makes sense to have is not in a banking portal it's in your own erp system it's in your own software environment so you can get real-time notifications of when money is received and you can make real-time instructions that are automated it's not a person sitting somewhere clicking a button or uploading a file or whatever it may be um, so the way that we look at ourselves is that banks have created this amazing uh, rail network think of it as high-speed trains between themselves. But most businesses, those rails end 300 meters from the platform where they are actually standing. So you have this real-time thing, new, new payments platform, a great example. It's a real-time payments network, really impressive, but it ends 300 meters away from the platform. So you have to walk 300 meters to get the information and get the funds that you saw happening so quickly until there, which essentially means you might as well wait two hours and do a batch payment instead. We build the last 300 meters of rail so that the information and the funds arrive just where you need them, not where sort of the bank infrastructure ends. So I'm just thinking then, so, you know, we've got clients in the United States and um, who pay us for our services. And um, we might ask them rather than, you know, pay from their US bank entity into our Australian bank entity, we might say, hey, would you mind mm -hmm. saving us a fair chunk on the exchange rate yep. and paying us via transfer wise? Yeah. Uh, how does the money turn up in my account and what, what role in that transaction does maneuver? So uh, a better um, example, if you don't mind, would be if somehow you were paying them because we, we service Australian, the Australian entity of TransferWise. Um, and so our, our main services regard the the collection of funds in Australia to go overseas or to their cross-border um, account. Um, the same thing would apply if we were a US-based company, but let's just uh, be specific. Um, we help them receiving funds immediately. So say you're, let's use an example, you're paying a, a family in Sweden for that wonderful gift that you were meant to pay for. Uh, and um, 
the beginning bit of that international leg back to Stockholm is you pay into a domestic bank account. That account number is unique to you in the transferwise world. They've given you a specific account number that no one else has. They have in turn got that account number from us. When funds are paid to that from your normal banking portal, whatever bank you're using, um, by the time your mouse cursor moves from the pay button in, I don't know, NAB or CBA or Westpac, whatever it is, um, the money has been received in this account number. We have reconciled against that. Essentially, we're telling TransferWise, congratulations, you got $100 from, from Anders uh, into this account number. And they can then immediately, you know, if they want to, they can send you a message saying, thank you very much. Uh, here is your top up balance or whatever it is. So it's the real-time receivables and the real-time reconciliation of those funds, as well as allowing them to give us a real-time instruction on what to do with the money next. This, we use TransferWise as an example here, but there are lots of businesses that have very large ongoing flows of funds. Um, it is not an industry-specific problem that we're solving. Uh, it is industry agnostic in that sense, but you generally are a large technology-focused platform business um, to make the most use of our, mm. uh, of our uh, services and support. But we're also working with utility providers and, and others. Now, I have a question for you. Now, we're, this is the second Renaissance podcast. By the way, I'd never had a podcast before this. I'm, I'm impressed. Um, what is the Renaissance component? So we're talking about creativity. Is that what you think of as Renaissance? I mean, obviously, I, I love the Renaissance. It generally means rebirth. Right? I mean, literally, it means rebirth. First time in Florence, this time apparently in North Sydney. Um, what is the Renaissance component of the thread that you're spinning? Yeah, so I think the thread we're, we're, we're spinning together, I mean, I, you know, fascinated in, in, in your entrepreneurial journey, but uh, the argument is essentially that there is this flourishing of human creativity that in many ways I was already seeing in terms of, you know, some, some patterns and pattern recognition, even pre the pandemic, oftentimes enabled, as you pointed out before, as a, as a labor-saving technology automation, artificial intelligence, robotics, what we were seeing around the world is that we're saving humans time and drudgery. Yes. And because of technology or, or the saving of four seconds or having to enter mm -hmm. data or you know, punching spreadsheets, we can help humans do less of the menial and do more of the meaningful. Yeah. Uh, to, do more, to do more of the humane and less of the mundane. Like that, and um, I do see technologies, including you know payment technologies, as a way for us to to save time. And I'm guess you know starting to think about the kind of end zone here in our, in our dialogue. Um, I am curious to see how you foresee the unleashing of, of human creativity, right, hmm. and a and a and a rebirthing of um, human potentiality like we saw in the first renaissance you know we had a pandemic um that hit florence you know half of the population w wiped out we saw um the the pandemic leading to huge labor force mobility mm -hmm. so we we saw um peasants becoming merchants merchants becoming new noblemen and women mm. and the cost of labor went through the roof for yes. the people who had capital. So capital was being redeployed um, and 
people got actually paid more for, for their labor. We had the rise of the likes of Da Vinci and, and some great, you know, po- political philosophers and there, there was a flourishing of, of human art. So we, we're using it in that context that mm. maybe we're, despite the tough times that we have gone through with lives and livelihoods impacted this, this year, that there's sort of this early dawn of, of human creativity. So, so I, I love the optimism of that. I'm definitely a glass half full type person. Uh, generally, I probably say it's full, even though it's only half full. Uh, so I would love to believe that all of this that we're working on in whatever sphere of life or society that we're active, uh, that it's going to lead to a richer life. Not necessarily wealthier, but definitely richer. Um, there is, however, I think always a nagging feeling that somewhere we're not sort of making the most of everything. Um, but that is quite a weak argument, and it's certainly never an argument for not doing something because you allow for choice. And the small number amongst us that are going to use those four seconds for something productive, something creative, it's worthwhile if even if just one more person uses the four seconds for something. Um, I would argue that, um, I, I think you're, first of all, I really like the, again, the historical analogy. It's always something that's close to me. Um, very few people remember the extremely close link between um, the plague pandemic at the point um, and the labor market changes. I mean, that really had huge implications. And many say that's really the dawn of of democracy in Europe because all of a sudden noblemen had to actually really care about what the peasants said because there's a few of them. They actually had a competitive advantage in hiring, so you need to pay more and you had to allow them more freedoms. Otherwise, they'll go to the next noble person and whatever. Um, so hopefully uh, we'll, we'll see some of the positive aspects of that happening now too. But I think over time, we will need to distinguish ourselves and justify our time, not just to ourselves, but to other people around us um, and things that are now highly technical, often highly valued as well, is not necessarily the best use of human time. It might be a good use of time, the time of a robot or an algorithm or something, but not necessarily the best use of human time. And as we become more automated and as we expect things to happen in the background, whether it's payments or something else, um, we have this luxury problem of what do I do with my time? Still, somehow, we seem to work harder and harder and longer and longer. Keynes, to go back to him quickly, uh, wrote an amazing paper, a very short one. Uh, I think it was called something like Economic Prospects for My Grandchildren, where he, he believed that by roughly now, so 2010, I think it was the year or something he used, um, efficiency in manufacturing and so on, would, and he wrote this in the 30s, um, would, be, would have come so far that no one will work more than eight hours a week. And the rest of the time, you know, he belonged to the Bloomsbury Group, we will be writing poems and we will be painting and we will be having philosophical arguments and basically for the betterment of, of, of uh, humankind. I want to believe there's something to it. I think we are underestimating um, the lack of telos in society. So there, as we've lost a lot of sort of moral imperatives and categorical imperatives that, you know, this is good and this is bad, and then some of these for good reasons, uh, we've become sort of ensnared in, in relative um, objectives. There's no absolute good. It's just you can have better or worse. Uh, and generally, it takes the form of money. It's stuff that you can count. Um, no one says, I am rich enough. Most people say, I'm richer than or poorer than. So the risk is that with more time, we will not allow ourselves to use that uh, in a sense that we have what we need. 
let's just use our time to write the poems that, that Cain spoke about, we'll probably struggle on and get better or worse as opposed to just good or bad. Having said that, I'm an optimist. And I think that amongst all these people, there will be a few, and then even more, and then more than that, who with the opportunities that automation technology allow, will bring all of us, I think, to uh, new levels of excitement. Yeah, and I guess, you know, just just kind of tuning into that idea and, and the sort of Keynesianism there, and, um, you know, there's always a fear in terms of, you know, the, the labor market, that technology and autom automation technology uh, can replace humans, mm. right? And uh, at the same time, you see technologies like the humble ATM, mm. you know, in a financial technology perspective uh, or context, you know, yes, it was a labor-saving device in terms of handing out cash and depositing cash, yeah. um, but it enabled banks to, to hire bank workers who did other things, not necessarily Great. bank workers who were dispensing cash faster, mm. but they could, you know, they could focus on different types of, different types of value adds. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, from, and I think Kane said, correct me if I'm wrong here that, and I'm paraphrasing that, you know, when, when the external facts change, Mm -hmm. I change my mind. What, and then he added, exactly, don't you, whatever he said. What, yeah. what, what do you do? Yeah, I like that. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious when, when, you know, from from your historical perspective, from your future gazing perspective, do you think that automation technologies like the ones that you guys create, do you think, do you think they will enable humans to create new jobs? Who do you think might be... Yes. Potentially automated out. And if, if you're running the risk of being automated out, what should you do as, as, as a person, as a human? I think often, um, again, it's helpful to, to not think of ourselves as being so exceptional. Uh, we have, uh, you know, a few million years of, of human history and a few thousand years of written history. And, and time and time again, people have actually faced the same problems and have asked the same questions. And time and time again, what they thought was, you know, catastrophic with exceptions uh, have turned out to be not necessarily so bad I mean, there are very few people nowadays who longingly gaze at a riverbed and go i wish i was there washing my clothes oh i really hate washing machines the very few who do that the people who used to be down at the riverbed washing clothes are now doing hopefully more exciting things now that is very easy to say a few generations after the uh, invention introduction of the washing machine and there were definitely people who in the transition away from and the washboards um, felt that they were being neglected and they were no longer needed and, you know, trade with very, very long uh, traditions were coming to essentially an end. Um, but I do not think we could find a single person who says, let's, like the Luddites, let's do away the, with the washing, washing machines and let's go back to the riverbed. Um, so we will all find that there are times when what we are working on is no longer the thing that people find the most useful, the most interesting, the most helpful. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't even more things to work on, um, but it would be uh, superficial. It would be naive to not believe that there are tensions and conflicts, that there are people who are more or less vulnerable. Um, generally, I think for anyone who is a decision maker, whether it's politically or commercially or something, again, trying to not think of ourselves as facing pe you know, peculiar and uh, sort of specific problems that have never happened before will help us draw some of the lessons from history. And I don't think history repeats itself, but as someone said, I can't remember who said, uh, you know, history rhymes. 
that there there are things we can learn and um generally we have made progress we haven't regressed mm. and i think you know as we i mean as we look towards the future um I think sometimes the, the, the human tendency tends to be to maybe not ask questions or maybe mm. not sit and have that space to actually be creative, um, to get maybe too operational. Of course. And because we're doing menial or even mundane work, we kind of go, I'm not going to get to the humane or the mm. really meaningful full stuff. So I'm curious what, what you sort of see as as – as the human skills that might be in demand in a future that is increasingly automated? Um, I mean, I probably only have a layman's idea of this. Uh, so lots of people have much better ideas, but I imagine that there are probably two at least. Uh, one is human interaction. Humans like speaking to other humans and being with other humans more than we probably most of the time like being with machines. And we, would, I think, would sense it would be a feeling of insulting or sort of insult or resentment to be spoken to as if the computer was a mesh, uh, was a human. And I, I think we generally prefer other people. Um, so whether that is as, you know, packaged up in jargon, sort of stakeholder management, <laughs> or whether it's just being people with other people who can uh, sort of... Uh, bring inspiration together and, and the like, I cannot see that disappearing anytime ever. Mm. Um, we can have computers who are very, very good at so many things. I just cannot see that happening. That may might be great tools, but they're not going to be leaders. Um, I also think that truly free-flowing lateral thinking is also something that is very hard to think of in a non-human context. Um, and we even have strange connections in our heads between colors and temperatures and temperatures and flavors it's not obvious at all that red and hot and strong or sort of chili flavor that they somehow belong together i mean but they do no one would think of red and cool <laughs> you know mm. it's it's just whether that is because of fire being more red than it's being blue but there are blue flames and yet blue generally mm. we think of as cool and maybe cold and um that kind of thinking which you know maybe that was a useless example but stuff that isn't easily put into an algorithm uh, or if it is then it probably requires sort of machine learning more so even than AI because ultimately it has to resonate with a person. And if we're not sharing the same points of reference, then it's sort of, you know, it, it's totally useless. And mm -hmm. so I, if you can think laterally, if you can connect things that have no obvious connection at first sight, and if you can present those narratives and those stories to other humans in a way that resonates with them and makes them see the same links, in whatever industry you are, I think you're going to be successful. Mm. And, and yeah, and thank you for, for for maybe being the symbol or the personification of some of those things when people say, That's great you know, st you. St <laughs> st well, Stockholm, Sweden, you know, military service, speech writing for a lord, running yeah, agribusiness, you know, investment funds in, 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 in Africa and, and, and then, you know, drawing on the analogy of the first fleet. We've talked about the Renaissance and, and how you ended up here leading a fintech in Australia. Not, not all of those associations are immediately no. obvious, but, um, True. you know, they make for, you know, for a creative entrepreneur that I'm sitting and having this dialogue with. So 
Maybe just as a, as a final question then, given what you're seeing automation and, and some of those human skills of the future, what, what advice are you giving to your daughter or what kind of, what kind of parts of her innate personality are you, are you trying to nurture as she faces the, 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 the future of work? I mean, so many of them like have a ponytail uh, at this point. She refuses blank. You know, she will only have her hair loose. Having overcome that challenge, hopefully quite soon, uh, I think the biggest thing to bring anywhere uh, with the risk of sounding corny is empathy. Um, empathy, I think, is core to human existence. And it might sound vague, but I think it's actually quite specific and it's quite precise. If you cannot put yourself in the shoes of the person sitting opposite you, you cannot tell them, to go back to what I said earlier, a story. And if you can, can't tell them a story, then there is no way you can lead. There's no way you can create a connection. Um, there is no way that you can make interesting what previously was not interesting. And therefore, there is no way you can have a proper exchange. So I think empathy. Can you put yourself in the other person's shoes? Can you think about what they would think about of you? That is, I think, core to a lot from happiness to success. And um, we all need to work on that. And including my daughter, who needs bit of empathy too i think yeah i've got a toddler the same age yeah. so i'm gonna go home and tell lucine about the importance of empathy as he prepares himself <laughs> you, you the might turn the other cheek and they might not but anyway yeah. <laughs> yeah. well it's been a it's been a great uh great innings thank you and I've loved uh it. i appreciate the dialogue um thank you for for sitting down with us on the on the second renaissance and i, I wish you and your family and maneuver uh all the all the best in this emerging world of hopefully a great economic recovery as well thanks Dennis. it's been wonderful thank you thank you Thank you for lending us your ears here at the Second Renaissance. If you like what you have just heard, we'd love you to give it a thumbs up or subscribe to our podcast in your major podcast catches. And of course, if you just want to rave about it to your friends uh, and relatives, feel free to do so as well. We appreciate all of the digital and the analog love you can give to us. We look forward to seeing you next time in the future here at the Second Renaissance.